The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. The potential for an escape mutation is the classic known unknown. We're just simply in the hands of natural evolution. It's a lottery that's playing out in front of us at the moment. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Magellan in the Know. I'm Frank Casarotti, General Manager of Distribution at Magellan, and I recently interviewed Hamish Douglas, our Chairman and CIO, for a live investor webinar called The Year of Living Dangerously. In this bonus episode, you can hear a recording of that interview. So as COVID-19 vaccination programs gather pace all over the world, so too does a sense of optimism that the virus will be defeated and that global economies will finally move on. But is this optimism really warranted, particularly when it comes to investing? In this interview, Hamish considers the efficacy of the newly developed vaccines against the growing number of viral mutations that have the potential to threaten a recovery from the pandemic. Welcome, Hamish. So the title of this event is interesting, The Year of Living Dangerously. What do you mean by that? Well, Frank, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It's greatly appreciated. I think, Frank, you said we're an incredibly interesting times. Sometimes it doesn't feel we're in interesting times when stock markets just go up every day since these vaccines have been discovered. So people are a little bit surprised maybe why we're calling this webinar the year of living dangerously. I would say that this environment we're in, Frank, is probably the most complex environment I've seen in 14 years. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a little story here. Not surprising, it's going to be a Netflix series. We've just in the last six or 12 months made a major investment in in Netflix. I want everyone to imagine on this call that you're watching a Netflix series. And the Netflix series, we can recap season one of this series. It was called Pandemic. And really this tracked the outbreak of a novel coronavirus in Wuhan in China. It tracked the sort of collapse of stock markets. But we all remember the ending of season one. It was this incredible discovery of science. And it really surprised all the scientific community of just how fast this vaccine was found and its unbelievable efficacy of the vaccine. It kind of reminded me the end of this first season pandemic of the end of the moving Independence Day, if anyone saw it. And it was a celebration to our great scientists that they defied all the expectations and have found this sort of silver bullet or powerful weapon to defeat the virus. And I think we remembered the end of the season was this huge global euphoria with roaring stock markets. Season two is now underway, and we've called this season two the year of living dangerously. The director has commenced filming, but he hasn't finished filming season two. And actually, he's got two different teams writing two different endings to season two. The, the first ending or the first script, he subtitled this Awakening. And under the Awakening script, it's really a celebration of science and the ability of vaccines to end the virus. And it really documents how society deals and how economies 
cope with recovery from the pandemic. Season two starts with the end of the Trump administration, and it features two important characters. One is Jay Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and another is Janet Yellen. Unfortunately, she resigned from Magellan in her role and she became the new Treasury Secretary. I think that Magellan bit's going to be taken out of the series, but she's the new Treasury Secretary under the Biden administration. And the season analyzes the enormous additional stimulus package that was passed by US Congress and the ongoing aggressive actions taken by Jay Powell to aid the economic recovery. As the season is still an early production, the director is playing around with two different endings of this season two called Awakenings. In both versions, Awakening, the pandemic is conquered, but the financial outcome in terms of the end could be quite different. The first one is a relatively smooth ending with a rapid but controlled economic recovery. And really, this is a Nirvana outcome. This is kind of the great ending to the story. Stock markets have recovered. Everybody's got jobs again, and the pandemic's been defeated. But he's also playing around with something that's probably not quite as cliched with that, but a not so happy ending. The pandemic's been conquered, but too much government spending by Yellen and too much easy money by Powell triggers a nasty and lasting outbreak of inflation and forces central banks to abruptly raise interest rates, triggering the next worldwide downturn. And this, of course, would be a nasty shock for financial markets. Now, let's make an assumption that these sort of incomplete scripts of awakening, these two different endings, have been leaked and viewers start debating about which ending they want. This is all starting to sound a little bit too familiar to the debate that's on in financial markets at the moment. This debate around inflation and interest rates is a very complex debate, but also a very important debate, and it actually has very different implications for investors. And I think we're going to get questions on inflation and interest rates and what the consequences could be. But I would say that is the principal debate. So everybody thinks they're watching the beginning of season two awakening. But there is another potential season that the director's thinking of, and he hasn't really decided what he's doing, and he's secretly working on a second script. And this second script is subtitled, not awakening, but the mutant strain. This is not a celebration of science, but really a focus on the unpredictability of nature. This is a much darker take on how 2021 could unfold in front of us. The plot is that a mutant strain of the virus emerges and it evades the current vaccines. Unlike Awakening, which has been leaked, this is a super confidential project and the director wants it to become as a complete shock to everyone. Surprise is paramount if he's going to go down this path, the director, he or she's going to go down this path. The director was a little bit concerned that season one with this sort of ending like Independence Day was a little cliched and maybe a bit more shock would be in order. Enough probably of the storytelling, but people get the picture here, Frank. I think we're having an economic recovery debate. Everyone's focused on awakening, but there is genuinely potentially another ending to this year that we're in. We're in a very complex and fluid risk environment at the moment. So maybe I may just leave it there because I know you've got a series of questions you want to ask me about how we're reading the virus at the moment. And that's obviously a critical sort of observational pathway to managing money, obviously, the importance of understanding where that virus is going. But can you also give us a quick overview of how the immune system works? 
yeah, we've been doing a lot of research on this. And the first thing I'd say, I'm not an immunologist at the end of the day. Our understanding is the immune system is a very complex, multifaceted, multidimensional and highly integrated system that works to fight infection. At a very basic level, there are four integrated mechanisms in our immune defence system. The first is what are known as T-cells and specific type of T-cells called CD4 T-cells. They often refer these T-cells as helper cells. I kind of think of these cells as the intelligence service of the immune system. In simple terms, they're an early warning system to recognise that there's a virus in our body and it's before any of our cells become infected with a virus. So the helper cells identify that something's entered our body but hasn't yet entered our cells, and it sends out signals to the immune system to fire up. The second part of the immune system is something called B cells, and you could think of these cells as maybe the logistics core of the defence force. Once the helper cells or those T cells I referred to as or the intelligence services recognise that an invasion of a virus has entered our body, they instruct B cells to arm, let's call it the special forces and what they're known as antibodies, really to go and block the virus from entering our cells. The virus is in our body, but it hasn't yet entered our cells. And so what it does is it's giving instructions, these B cells, to create antibodies. And antibodies are the special forces that are really sent out to attack the virus before it invades our cells. The special forces are pretty complex. They consist of many different forms of soldiers with different weapons to attack the virus in multiple different ways, incredibly sophisticated. You could think of it as defence setting. You could have the Marines, the SEALs, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, and they're all armed with different weapons. And they go out and attack. You have a lot of antibodies that go and attack the virus simultaneously. And then the last part of this four-line defence is another series of T-cells, and they're actually called CD8 T-cells. And the immunologists often call these as sort of killer cells. And these are really the last line of defence. If the antibodies fail to stop the viral invasion from actually entering our own cells, these killer cells are pretty smart and they can recognise that a cell has been infected with a virus, and then they actually go to target and they kill the infected cells at the end of the day. And all these concepts between antibodies and T cells and B cells are incredibly important to understanding what's going on at the moment. And so what's your take on how the current vaccines are working? Well, the vaccines are actually fairly easy to understand at a high conceptual level. Scientists have taken, let's call it a high resolution picture of the exact blueprint of a critical part of this virus. They've identified that the coronavirus has a large probe that locks onto our cells in order to invade and infect cells. And the probe is called the S or the spike protein. And I think many people have heard about this S or spike protein. And scientists worked out that they showed the immune system an exact copy of the blueprint of the spike protein. Then it could trick the CD4 T cells or the intelligence service to remember exactly what this spike looks like on the virus. And then if it ever sees this spike, it could send instructions to our B cells to arm the special forces or effectively create the antibodies to go and attack it. 
So the vaccines are effectively pre-warning the immune system. If they ever see the spike, then the immune system will know exactly what to do. There's some evidence here that the killer T cells or the CD8 T cells may be pre-warned that if the antibodies fail, that they should kick into action, but there's only limited evidence on that. There is a shortcoming in what the scientists have done, as brilliant as has been. They've only shown part of the plans of the virus, as in the spike. They have not shown our immune system the entire virus protein. And one of the world's renowned experts on vaccines is a man called Dr. Gregory Pollan from the Mayo Clinic in the United States. States. And there's some wonderful YouTube videos that Greg does. Mayo has an ongoing series here. And he said, of all the vaccines, a spike-only approaches, which I believe will be the Achilles heel of some of these vaccines. Remember, this is an RNA virus, and we would never construct a vaccine that we intended to use for a long time on one protein because of viral mutation and viral recombination events. The question is, could these variants evade immune responses And the early answer is yes. People don't think this is going to happen. That's part of human irrationality. These are RNA viruses. And when you only present one antigen, you run into the potential for trouble. If we don't get smart quick, we're going to chase our tail with making vaccine after vaccine as this mutates. And it's a good question, Frank, you know, why scientists didn't develop a vaccine just with the entire blueprint if they knew this could be an Achilles heel. And the answer is, whilst it would be theoretically superior to show the whole protein to create the vaccine to the immune system, this is far more complex. And we would have never done this in 10 months. They could have never got to this in doing the whole of protein vaccine. The good news is it's been worked on. So there are other vaccines, which are whole of protein vaccines that are in the works, but there was speed to do it. They did it, but there are some flaws potentially in the vaccine approaches we have. Yep. And Hamish, in your Netflix series, you talked about the escape of a mutant strain. If this were to happen, could it derail the assumed economic global bounce back? It's a great question, Frank, and I love the term, the escape mutant. You didn't have many images in your mind. The only way to properly assess this risk is to be guided by science. Here. This is a scientific question. So let's look at some of the current state of scientific facts that we've been able to uncover and to try and assess whether it's foreseeable that the COVID-19 virus could mutate in such a way to evade the current vaccines that we have. Assessing this risk is absolutely critical for financial markets because in our best assessment, we think financial markets are assuming this will not happen. And that's an important understanding to have. There's very little margin for error here in what the markets are pricing. So what is the risk? Every time the virus replicates, it needs to take a copy of its blueprint that is known as the RNA. What's the analogy? It's like taking 10 pages of handwriting and copying the pages exactly by hand over and over. This virus is pretty clever. It's actually got a proofreader. So in this instance, the proofreader and the virus checks that these handwritten pages are copied accurately. But the replication happens millions and millions of times. And every now and then, this proofreader is a little lazy and mistakes creep in to this blueprint it's trying to see. And as the blueprint for this spike protein changes or mutates, these CD4 T cells or this intelligence service that is trying to 
they've got a copy of the blueprint, but as the blueprint is changing, they're less able to recognize the spike protein because what they've got in front of them and what's coming into the body suddenly looks different. And if it's different, as the spike protein changes, these T cells may send fewer instructions to the B cells to create antibodies. And after enough mutations in the spike protein, it may change enough that they're no longer able to recognize the spike protein and suddenly an escape mutation emerges. And, you know, escape mutant, because of evolution and things have become dominant, this would likely become the dominant strain if it wasn't control. You know, so where are we up to at the moment? There is 100% evidence. And I do not use 100% lightly. I normally never use. I criticize people internally if they ever say they're 100% certain. But I am 100% certain that copying errors are occurring and the virus has already undergone significant change. And it is also, I've put maybe 99% likely that the virus will continue to mutate and change. The rate of mutations is correlated with the rate of spread of the virus. And that's one of the reasons they want to vaccinate everyone to get the rate of spread down and they want to socially distance. They want to stop this mutation rate. There is clear scientific evidence that the mutations in South Africa and Brazil have already significantly undermined the ability of the CD4 T cells, the intelligence services, I call them, to recognize the spike protein. And the B cells are deploying fewer and fewer antibodies to prevent infection. The scientific evidence shows that the major vaccines are now only 10 to 60% effective in preventing symptomatic infection in South Africa. So we already know the defence to the vaccines is significantly compromised in South Africa at the moment. But on the other side, and a lot of people are referring to this one, there's very clear scientific evidence that the UK mutation, which is also dominant in Israel and is really many of the mutations we see in the United States, has not significantly undermined the intelligence service or these CD4 T cells to instruct the B cells to produce a large number of antibodies. And the vaccines are highly effective at preventing sort of infection from these strains. Therefore, what's going on in South Africa and Brazil, in our view, is far more relevant in assessing this viral escape risk than looking to the UK or Israel to guide you. And all the media is popping the champagne corks about the UK and Israel And we would say it's completely irrelevant. Hmm. What is relevant is where we're up to in South Africa and Brazil and whether these strains further mutate. Having said that, there's a lot of people that have just read that the vaccine can just quite simply be recoded to take account of the new variants. How easy is it to actually recode the vaccines, the current vaccines, for an escape mutant? Frank, this is a great question. It's the same we're putting to many scientific experts around the world. You know, we hear, don't worry, we're working on a recode of the vaccines. I think Moderna came out and said that the other day. And unfortunately, the answer to this question, whether or not it's easy to recode or not, is it depends. I know people don't like hearing that. 
there are two types of changes that can occur to the spike protein as it mutates. The first is a change in shape of the spike protein. And this should be fairly easy to recode for because you just take an exact copy of the blueprint again and then you show those new blueprints to the immune system with a new vaccine. Then your T cells and your B cells will recognise it, produce antibodies, and we're back to a very highly effective vaccine. I think that's what people talk about when it should be easy to recode. But the problem is there's a second type of change that happens, which we'd call a stealth change. And this is exactly what goes on with viruses that are very, very hard to vaccinate, particularly HIV. A lot of it, it mutates rapidly, but it's got a lot of stealth covering. It's very difficult for the antibodies to recognise. And with a stealth change, not only is it changing in nature, but you may put a sort of shield over part of the spike where antibodies can no longer see it. And part of it's something called glycine. It's like a sugar coating change. And if it's that type of change that the virus hides itself from antibodies, simply recoding your vaccines to produce more antibodies won't do very much if the antibodies can't actually see that part of the virus. And there is some evidence that both shape and stealth mutations are occurring at present. We don't know whether the stealth mutations are critical in terms of the immune response elicited by the vaccines or not, but it's an issue that is going on underneath the surface is the nature of these mutations and whether or not you really can simply recode for them. And at the same time, obviously, there's commentary around the place suggesting that the vaccines are less effective against South African and Brazil versions, but at the same time, they are preventing deaths. How much comfort do you take that the current vaccines are actually preventing death? You're right that many health officials, and I would argue many investors as well, point out that they can see that the efficacy in South Africa and Brazil is dropping in terms of it's not really preventing moderate to severe infection, but they seem to have some strong scientific evidence that the vaccines are preventing people from dying at the moment. I would say some of this evidence is very, very narrow, and the Johnson & Johnson entire trial of nearly 30,000 people, only seven people died and they all died in South Africa, none of those were vaccinated. But no one died, whether on the placebo or on the vaccine in Brazil. So I'm not sure where you read that into. But that is a factually correct statement. You know, do I take a lot of comfort for the fact that the people aren't dying from these when they're vaccinated, even when they're being infected? I take little comfort in that observation. Is This is only a snapshot in time. And the virus will continue to evolve and it will continue to mutate. And we can see that the vaccine efficacy is already compromised, actually substantially compromised. And if you take enough time to read enough papers, and I probably read two to three scientific papers a day, and myself and John Wiley, who runs our healthcare franchise for us, we're speaking to the world's leading scientists multiple times a week at the moment. And there is evidence from looking at some scientific studies that future mutations could enable the virus to change in a way to completely evade the antibody response that has been developed by the current vaccines. In fact, a lab experiment that was released at the end of December showed that a mutation occurred in the virus known as E484K, which is the critical mutation that has appeared in South Africa and Brazil, and that appeared in the lab through a lab experiment. But what then happened subsequent to that mutation, two other mutations occurred in the lab in another part of the spike protein. We don't need to get into the details of science here. But when those subsequent mutations happened, it enabled the virus to completely evade 
all the antibodies present in the lab experiment. And concerningly, those future mutations in the lab appeared to be of the stealth type, which goes to the recoding risk. You know, whether or not these types of mutations occur in the real world is unknown, but they're foreseeable from lab in vitro experiments that they absolutely could occur. The lab's different to the real world. The antibodies that you get from vaccines are more comprehensive than the antibodies that they're exposed to in this experiment. And the potential for an escape mutation is the classic known unknown. We're just simply in the hands of natural evolution. It's a lottery that's playing out in front of us at the moment. So if that's the case, Hamish, why do you think there's a lot of smart people that seem to be ignoring the risk associated with an escape mutant and the impact on the economy and the rest of it. So why is it that other people aren't seeing the risks? Yeah, this is a really great question. And I think it's a study in human psychology and behaviour. And why, you know, so many very highly intelligent people appear to be ignoring the risk. And I would say there's a combination of maybe four powerful heuristic biases at work here. The first would be confirmation bias that I'll talk about in just a minute. Another one is oversimplification tendency. You know, this is incredibly complex to get your mind around the immune system, the scientists, what the levels of uncertainty are here. And, you know, as Einstein famously said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no more simple. And the problem about this is no more simple is the key part of this. And I think people are looking at data and just saying, well, more people are getting infected, but they're not dying. And therefore, this is all going to hold because that's where we're at. And we've just hit the pause button. Mm. I think another sort of powerful effect here because of what we've seen since the vaccines have been discovered is a classic fear of missing out. You know, you have to be prepared to step away from the crowd. And it's really difficult to do when everyone appears to be making easy bunny and it appears to be a turbocharged sure bet, you know, with what Yellen and Powell are doing. In the absence of this risk, it almost looks like a sure bet to take risk on. And to some extent, the more risk you take on, the more you're going to get rewarded at the moment. You know, there's some elements of what's going on in the market that really reminds me of the dot-com boom at the end of the 1990s at the present time. And there's clear speculative frenzy in certain assets of the market. And that isn't telling you anything that this fear of missing out is just at its extreme levels. And therefore, the cost of being cautious at the moment can have a very high cost to it. The fourth one I would say in heuristic biases is just a neglect of probability. And, you know, most people don't think in terms of probabilities. And when you've determined a course of action, you either just ignore there are other scenarios that could happen, or you think about them and you dismiss them. And therefore, you don't have any probabilistic weighting on other events. And I'll just give you an example of this heuristic bias and particularly confirmation bias. You know, a few weeks ago, three studies were released on the same day. Israel and Scotland released results that showed the vaccine had been highly effective in preventing infection, hospitalisation and death, you know, in the 90% territory. And that got widely, widely reported. On exactly the same day, a study was released on the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine and its effectiveness in South Africa. And it showed it was only 10% effective in preventing mild to severe infection compared to unvaccinated infection. So AstraZeneca, almost you have no benefit 
in getting infected in South Africa of having that vaccine. It's almost useless for mild to severe infection. The first two studies received accolades and wide global media coverage and coverage from investors in their investor notes. The results of what went on with AstraZeneca Oxford in South Africa, and I would argue potentially a canary in the coal mine, largely went unreported and by the global media and what was in the news and seems to be ignored by equity investors. Why do I say it seems to be ignored? Because when those three different studies came out, travel-related stocks went up nearly 10 percentage points on the day. Mm -hmm. So everybody says we're off to the races with what Israel and Scotland are saying. And I guess when you're in a bullish mood, you hear what you want to hear. So Hamish, what is the biggest known unknown at the moment? The biggest known unknown at the moment is I think it's very likely the vaccines will continue to wane against the antibody response. Does that mean we're going to have an escape mutant? The, the answer is we don't know and no scientists know because the killer T cells, which are the other line of defence here, that go and eat the infected cells, we don't know whether the vaccines are eliciting a strong enough CD8 T cell response here or not. The world's foremost scientific experts just simply do not know the answer to that question. We don't know the answer to that question, neither does anybody else. Obviously, the virus is going to have an impact on the environment. What do you see the risk to the environment? Yeah, it's a good question. So how are we thinking about investment risk in this environment? Look, the first thing when we take a view at Magellan, you know, we don't invest on the basis of speculation, you know, whether there's actually going to be an escape mutant or not. We can invest based on assessment of the facts and the facts are fluid and they're evolving. We're not entrusted with anybody's money just to speculate, just to guess or what outcomes could be, our best assessment, this is the time to be cautious when others are greedy. I don't think it's a time to be fearful when others are greedy, that very famous quote, but I think it's a time to be cautious when others are greedy. Until we have some clearer scientific evidence really around the mutation risk and the recodability in relation to this, there is just no margin for error at the moment in markets on this. We have no idea whether an escape mutant is actually going to emerge. And we're certainly not going to say this is going to happen because we don't know. But the risk is foreseeable. And there's enough evidence to tell you it's foreseeable. And there are some clear warning signs at the moment. The investment community is almost solely focused on the economic recovery story. They're placing bets on the reopening plays. And of course, you've got this large debate around inflation and the direction of interest rates, which is a very, very important topic. And people are trying to position themselves around depending on the views on that. But there's a risk that sort of lurks below the surface. And the economic recovery scenario is complex enough to deal with. If we just had to debate inflation and interest rates and position yourself around that, you know, one could be we continue off the races. And if we really get inflation, markets could get polack. So actually getting that right is a very important call to get right. And we've certainly got views on that topic, but you overlay this with the mutation risk of the virus and you overlay it then where there are clear speculative frenzies going in some certain assets that appear to be getting pretty large. And this is a really, really difficult issue to deal with. At one point, you want to have risk on because of the stimulus and the economic recovery and it holding up. 
And there's other warning signs that telling you you could have your shirts ripped off here if something goes against you. And that's why we're saying this year is really the year of living dangerously. And people are feeling they just need to get on the bandwagon because everybody's making all this money at the moment. We're just saying just have a little bit of caution and remember the sage advice from our great mentor, I use that in a broad sense, Warren Buffett, when he says, to finish first, you must first finish. Hamish, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Frank. And thank you, everyone, for joining and taking the time. It truly is an extraordinary period that we're all living through at the moment. And thank you all for listening. Please feel free to share this interview with your friends or colleagues as you see fit. To listen to our March episode of Magellan In The Know, please visit magellangroup.com.au forward slash podcast. In this episode, Hamish speaks to Morningstar's Chief Ratings Officer about hunting for super compounding stocks. Thanks, and please stay safe.